Section three of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One kind of a boy. I am always sorry to see a youth get irritated and pack up his clothes in the heat of debate and leave the home nest. His future is a little doubtful, and it is hard to prognosticate whether he will fracture limestone for the streets of a great city or become president of the United States. But there is a beautiful and luminous life ahead of him, in comparison with that of the boy who obstinately refuses to leave the home nest. The boy who cannot summon the moral courage some day to uncoil the tendrils of his heart from the clustering idols of the household, to grapple with outrageous fortune, ought to be taken by the ear and led away out into the great untried realm of space. While the great world throbs on, he sighs and refuses to throb. While other young men put on their seal-brown overalls and wrench the laurel wreath and other vegetables from cruel fate, the youth who dangles near the old nest and eats the hard-earned groceries of his father shivers on the brink of life's great current and sheds the scalding tear. He is the young man afraid of the sawbuck, the human being with the unlaundried spinal column. The only vital question that may be said to agitate his pseudo-brain is whether he shall marry and bring his wife to the home nest, or marry and tear loose from his parents to live with his father-in-law. Finally he settles it and compromises by living alternately with each. How the old folks yearn to see him, how their aged eyes light up when he comes with his growing family to devour everything in sight and yawn through the space between meals. This is the heyday of his life, the high noon of the boy who never ventured to ride the yearling colt, or to be yanked through the shimmering sunlight at the tail of a two-year-old. He never dared to have any fun because he might bump his nose and make it bleed on his clean clothes. He never surreptitiously cut the copper wire off a lightning rod to snare suckers with, and he never went in swimming because the great rude boys might duck him or paint him with mud. He shunned the green apple of boyhood, and did not slide downhill because he would have to pull his sled back to the top again. Now he borrows other people's newspapers, eats the provisions of others, and sits on the counter of the grocery till the proprietor calls him a counter-irritant. There can be nothing more un-American than this flabby polyp, this one-horse tadpole that never becomes a frog. The average American would rather burst up in business six times in four years and settle for nine cents on the dollar than to lead such a life. He would rather be an active bankrupt than a weak and bilious barnacle on the clam-shell of home. The true American would rather work himself into luxury or the lunatic asylum than to hang like a great wart upon the face of nature. This young man is not in accordance with the Yankee schedule, and yet I do not want to say that he belongs to any other nation. Foreign powers may have been wrong, transatlantic nations may have erred, and the system of European government may have been erroneous, but I would not come out and charge them with this horrible responsibility. They never harmed me, and I will not tarnish their fair fame with this grave indictment. 
you will breathe a certain amount of atmosphere and absorb a given amount of feed for a few years, and then the full-grown biped will leave the home nest at last. The undertaker will come and get him, and take what there is left of him out to the cemetery. That will be all. There can be no deep abiding sorrow for him here. Public buildings will not be draped in mourning, and you can get your mail at the usual hour when he dies. The band will not play a sadder strain because the fag end of human failure has tapered down to death and the soft and shapeless features are still. You will have no trouble getting a draft cashed on that day, and the giddy throng will join the picnic, as they had made arrangements to do. THE CHAMPION MEAN MAN Laramie has the champion mean man. He has a Sunday handkerchief made to order with scarlet spots on it, which he sticks up to his nose just before the plate starts round, and leaves the church like a house on fire. So, after he has squeezed out the usual amount of gospel, he slips around the corner and goes home ten cents ahead, and has his self-adjusting nosebleed handkerchief for another trip. Fraternal Sparring I have just returned from a little two-handed tournament with the gloves. I have filled my nose with cotton waste so that I shall not soak this sketch in gore as I write. I needed a little healthful exercise and was looking for something that would be full of vigorous enthusiasm, and at the same time promote the healthful flow of blood to the muscles. This was rather difficult. I tried most everything, but failed. Being a sociable being, joke, I wanted other people to help me exercise or go along with me when I exercised. Some men can go away to a desert isle and have fun with dumbbells and a horizontal bar, but to me it would seem dull and commonplace after a while, and I would yearn for more humanity. Two of us finally concluded to play billiards, but we were only amateurs, and the owner intimated that he would want the table for Fourth of July, so we broke off in the middle of the first game and I paid for it. Then a younger brother said he had a set of boxing gloves in his room, and although I was the taller and had longer arms, he would hold up as long as he could, and I might hammer him until I gained strength and finally got well. I accepted this offer because I had often regretted that I had not made myself familiar with this art, and also because I knew it would create a thrill of interest and fire me with ambition, and that's what a hollow-eyed invalid needs to put him on the road to recovery. The boxing glove is a large fat mitten, with an abnormal thumb and a string at the wrist by which you tie it on, so that when you feed it to your adversary he cannot swallow it and choke himself. I had never seen any boxing gloves before, but my brother said they were soft and wouldn't hurt anybody. So we took off some of our raiment and put them on. Then we shook hands. I can remember distinctly yet that we shook hands. That was to show that we were friendly and would not slay each other. My brother is a great deal younger than I am, and so I warned him not to get excited and come for me with anything that would look like wild and ungovernable fury, because I might, in the heat of debate, pile his jaw up on his forehead and fill his ear full of sore thumb. He said that was all right, and he would try to be cool and collected. 
Then we put our right toes together, and I told him to be on his guard. At that moment, I dealt him a terrific blow aimed at his nose, but through a clerical error of mine, it went over his shoulder and spent itself in the wall of the room, shattering a small Hollywood bracket for which I paid him three seventy-five afterward. I did not wish to buy the bracket, because I had two at home, but he was arbitrary about it, and I bought it. When we took another athletic posture, and in two seconds the air was full of poulticed thumb and buckskin mitten, I soon detected a chance to put one in where my brother could smell of it, but I never knew just where it struck, for at that moment I ran up against something with the pit of my stomach that made me throw up the sponge along with other groceries, the names of which I cannot now recall. My brother then proposed that we take off the gloves, but I thought I had not sufficiently punished him, and that another round would complete the conquest, which was then almost within my grasp. I took a bismuth powder and squared myself, but in warding off a left-hander, I forgot about my adversary's right and ran my nose into the middle of his boxing glove. Fearing that I had injured him, I retreated rapidly on my elbows and shoulder blades to the corner of the room, thus giving him ample time to recover. By this means my younger brother's features were saved, and are today as symmetrical as my own. I can still cough up pieces of boxing gloves, and when I close my eyes I can see calcium lights and blue phosphorescent gleams across the horizon. But I am thoroughly convinced that there is no physical exercise which yields the same amount of health and elastic vigor to the puncher that the manly art does. To the punchee, also, it affords a large wad of glad surprises and nosebleed, which cannot be hurtful to those who hanker for the pleasing nervous shock, the spinal jar, and the pyrotechnic concussion. That is why I shall continue the exercises after I have practiced with a mule or a cowcatcher two or three weeks, and feel a little more confidence in myself. Chapita's Address to the Utes People of my tribe, the sorrowing widow of the dead Ure speaks to you. She comes to you, not as the squaw of the dead chieftain, to rouse you to war and victory, but to weep with you over the loss of her people and the greed of the pale-face. The fair Colorado, whose rocky mountains we have roamed and hunted in the olden time, is now overrun by the silver-plated senator and the soft-eyed dude. We are driven to a small corner of the earth to die, while the oppressor digs gopher holes in the green grass and sells them to the speculator of the great cities toward the rising sun. Through the long cold winter my people have passed, in want and cold, while the conqueror of the peaceful Ute has worn $250 nightshirts and filled his pale skin with pie. Chipita addresses you as the weeping squaw of a great man whose bones will one day nourish the cucumber vine. Ure now sleeps beneath the brown grass of the canyon, where the soft spring winds may stir the dead leaves, and the young coyote may come and monkey over his grave. Ure is ignorant of the ways of the pale-face. He could not go to Congress, for he was not a citizen of the United States. He had not taken out his second papers. 
He was a simple child of the forest, but he stuck to Chipita. He loved Chipita like a hired man. That is why the widowed squaw weeps over him. A few more years and I shall join Ure, my chief, Ure, the big engine from way up the gulch. His heart is still open to me. Chipita could trust him, even among the smiling maidens of her tribe. Ure was true. There was no funny business in his nature. He loved not the garb of the pale face, but won my heart while he wore a saddle blanket and look of woe. Chipita looks to the north and the south, and all about are the graves of her people. The refinement of the oppressor has come, with its divorce and schools and gin cocktails and flour bread and fall elections, and we linger here like a boil on the neck of a fat man. Even while I talk to you, the damp winds of April are sighing through my vertebras, and I've got more pains in my back than a conservatory. Weep with the widowed Chipita. Bow your head and howl, for our harps are hung on the willows and our wild goose is cooked. Who will be left to mourn at Chipita's grave? None but the starving papooses of my nation. We stand in the gray mist of spring, like dead burdocks in the field of the honest farmer, and the chilly winds of departing winter make us hump and gather like a burnt boot. All we can do is to wail. We are the red-skinned whalers from Whale Town. Colorado is no more the home of the Ute. It is the dwelling place of the Bonanza senator, who doesn't know the difference between the plan of salvation and the previous question. Chipita cannot vote. Chipita cannot pay taxes to a great nation. But you will be apt to hear her gentle voice, and her mellow racket will fill the air till her tongue is cold, and they tuck the buffalo robe about her and plant her by the side of her dead chieftain, where the south wind and the sage-hen are singing. End of section 3